The UK election in 2010 was historic in all sorts of ways, and it raised a huge number of issues around participation that we need to discuss. My name is Michael Saywood, and I'm from the Open University, and I'm here with my colleagues Paul Lewis, who's Professor of European Politics, and Richard Heffernan, who's Reader in Government, and Sarah Childs, who's Professor of Politics and Gender at Bristol University. I want to start off with this question. What was the headline issue, as far as you're concerned, about turnout in this election? We have a post-war average in Britain of 75%, and that's been declining in recent years. 70% in 1997, 59% in 2001, and then 61% in 2005. We went up this year to 65%, so we've seen an increase, but we're still way off where we used to be, which is 75. And I think that that's ground for some concern, particularly because it was a competitive election. And therefore, we would have thought turnout would have risen higher and most people expected it to do so. So there's something about the numbers that's important. We'll come back to unpack that in a moment. Paul? Well, it could have gone down a lot lot more because of the disgust over the expenses scandal whatsoever, for example. But also, there are plenty of people who tried to vote and were turned away, as as we saw on the the television. In terms of headline issue for you, Sarah? I think that image of people queuing was quite a surprising one for for the UK election. I did beg questions of whether people had just turned up to the uh, polling stations a little bit late and thought it would all be very quick. But I think People have the opportunity to vote in this country. You can, you can vote by post. You can have proxy votes. You can turn up. And I think the in- interesting question really is how did different turnout affect different types of people? Were, was the average the same across the country? Were there areas where fewer people turned out? Did it make distinctions by age or by class or by sex? We know for sex, for example, did actually men and women turn out at the same level? There's a lot of issues to debate and unpack there, and we'll do that in a moment. But first, let's hear why some members of the general public voted the way they did, or indeed did not vote. I did vote. Um, I think it's really important that we have an influence on who governs the country. Yes, I did vote. Uh, I believe it's right to vote, and everyone who's been given the right should do that, otherwise you can't complain about the outcome. I didn't vote in this election. Um, I didn't see any of the candidates or any of the parties offering anything worthwhile. They didn't seem very different to each other as well. I did vote for the first time in ages. I saw all of the television debates and in the end it did influence me as to what my vote was. I did vote yesterday because I'm not really interested in politics. I watched the TV debate and I wasn't convinced that they reflect my own views on where the country should be and who should rule. I did vote in the election. I think it's important to be part of the democratic process. It's our right and it's our duty. So there are lots of different reasons why people vote or indeed why they don't vote. Paul, why do people vote? I think the the Vox Pops gave us quite a good idea because it's our duty, which is quite interesting, I think, because people want to have a say, because they have, have, have opinions. My fear before the election, and it was a fear, was that a lot of people wouldn't vote. There's so much animus against MPs, the system, the parliamentary system, because of expenses, etc. I mean, there were various dangers. One was they would simply not vote at all or they vote for more extremist parties. And I thought this is quite, a, in democratic terms, quite a reasonable outcome in the sense that it's turned out to steadily been going up since the, the low of 2001. Sarah, should we be happy if we get a voting turnout of 65%, which is a reasonable amount up on the previous UK national election, is that a good outcome or is that not necessarily a good outcome? I think I'd like to see it much higher, actually. I think I'd like to see, particularly among young people, turnout that reflects a sense of having a buy-in into the system. Because I think there's a real concern that if 
the younger generation don't get used to voting, then those percentages will go back and decline over time again. We need to get that younger cohort voting again and being interested in politics. I think what this election did, perhaps surprisingly, through things like the leaders' um, debates on telly, was to get young people watching and listening again to politics. Do you think this is a case for votes at 16, by the way? Which was an issue that came up just in the margins, uh, I noticed, in the election. I think the problem with votes at 16 is if you introduce it, voting will go down because we know young people are less likely to vote than older people. So I think that debate isn't necessarily linked to turnout and perhaps shouldn't be linked to turnout because it will have the opposite effect to those who advocate votes at 16. It won't increase turnout. However, I think it is a case for better citizenship education within schools, which is about politicising young people to participate on issues and also in party politics. Get them involved with party politics, not just sort of issue politics. The difficulty there, of course, is that you need to turn maybe the question on its head, which is why people don't vote. It helps you understand why they do. And there are two principal reasons why people don't vote, as far as I can see. One is apathy. I don't care. And given the fact that we've never got much beyond 80% ever since universal suffrage at 21 in 1928. And then alienation. People are angry and disaffected and disaffiliated. And they can be sometimes mobilized to vote because they'll vote against something as opposed to for something. So apathy may be kind of... Uh, but there's also, they're too much the same. One of the voices we heard yeah. earlier. Yes. Can't yeah. tell well, the difference between the parties. Why vote? They all pee in the same pot and they didn't like the pot. So I think apathy is, is a bad thing, but it can sometimes be a good thing. After all, there are some people we probably wouldn't want to see vote regularly, but there are a small amount of people. I'm not sure that apathy is, is, is a good enough answer, actually, because if we look at where voting turnout is high and who votes and who doesn't, we see kind of big issues around social exclusion. The kind of constituencies that have lower turnout are often those that are very poor and working class and marginal. And I'm not convinced that we should therefore say that they're happy with what's going on. Apathy, I think, can be problematised. We need to unpack why people might be apathetic. OK, so we, we have a figure of 65 percent turnout. Might be a good thing or a bad thing, depending how you look at it. But you need to dig underneath that. So there's a, there's a clash dimension to that. Uh, but just something about mm. turnout. I mean, the, the lowest turnout in the UK is in one of the most deprived areas of Liverpool. Mm. I mean, yes. there's no sense that apathy is about satisfaction. A geographic which was, dimension as well. Yeah, yeah. indeed. I mean, I'm thinking of um, measures that we, we know about trust in politics, trust in democratic performance, trust in parties. Denmark has one of the highest turnouts, one of the highest levels of trust. We, by and large, don't trust parties at all. And we have a decrease over, over time, by and large, a decreasing turnout. So it's, it's not a good sign at all, I think. But aren't countries like Denmark and Sweden, don't they stand out from virtually all other democracies? Uh, well, they're quite apart from the UK in terms, of, <laughs> in terms of trust in politicians and yeah. trust in parties and uh, the, those usual measures. Is, but we is that were the up case? there with them several decades ago. You know, our high point, uh, 1950s, was pretty high, pretty yeah. same level, actually. Okay. But if you take the United States, which is a, a very class-ridden society, turnout in presidential elections has been rising considerably since 1988, when 50% voted, and we've gone up now to 64%. They had a better, higher rate of turnout than we did in 2005 in their 2004 presidential election. So there it is rising because people are mobilized and interested. And, of course, it's a supply and demand scenario because people will be motivated to vote if they agree that the choices on offer to them is something that they find meaningful. But I bear in mind we'll never, ever get 100% turnout, even in places like Australia where it's compulsory, where you're fined if you don't vote, they only ever hit 95%, which, of course, is dramatic. But still 5% don't vote, same in Greece. Okay, but what, how, how strong is the democratic case for compulsory voting then? Compulsory voting in the UK... You exercise your citizens' rights. Uh, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the philosopher, once said, we have to force people to be free sometimes. Well, Compulsory think, voting is more democratic. I think you Sarah, would, what do you think? 
I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, whether it's democratic or not is probably not the question I would pose for it. It's whether it's the outcome or the effect of introducing it would be a good thing. And I think I would have a lot of sympathy within that because I think that that whole package of introducing it would require citizenship education. It would require parties to actually go out and try and garner the votes that would be out there because people would be forced to vote. So actually, in that sense, it might transform the dynamics of political campaigning. It might change the nature of political parties. It might actually make politics more meaningful to many more people. So whether or not the actual imposition is democratic or not, would it have additional benefits for the kind of polity? And I, and I think there's quite a lot to be said for that. I'm, I'm against it. It's like making somebody interested in politics compulsory vote for Big Brother or for I'm a celebrity, please get them out of here, whatever these programmes are called. We don't vote in them because we don't want to. Though I I think one initiative would be that on each ballot there should be a box that says none of the above. So you can actually go down to the polling station and register your abstention that will be counted and there will be a vote tally for none of the above. And that would be in which you'd get people. Often people go along, don't like any of them. They're alienated, not apathetic, and they just spoil their ballot. I do that regularly in European parliamentary elections because I think it's an absurdity. But I'm registered when I do that as somebody who's just a fool or can't fill up their ballot paper, whereas actually I would like to have my abstention registered, and I think a lot more people would be of that mind. quite a fan of the European Parliament myself. Uh, But, Paul, I mean, France is is one example where... Turnout is more significantly higher. So is, is this really just a contextual thing? It, it's about the degree of motivation that politicians and parties can inspire in voters in different countries. It's a matter of different political cultures. Is, is that what this boils down to? I think it's something very practical as well. It's a matter of having a meaningful choice. I mean, the, the big choice in this election was about economic policy and all the major parties said very little about it. Uh, so it was very difficult to, to know who to vote for in that, in that case to make your choice. That's interesting because the comparative politics literature suggests there are two variables in explaining declining turnout. One is if the horse race, the campaign, is predetermined. If we all know who's going to win, so we all know in 2001 that the Blair government would be re-elected. That's going to depress turnout because people say there's no point in me going to vote because I know the result. The second one is if it's an uncompetitive election in that the horse race is boring and also there's no difference between the parties. In this last election just gone, it was a very, very competitive election. We had no idea who had won. And of course, in a hung parliament, we can argue the outcome is that nobody won in terms of winning a majority of seats in the Commons. Yet turnout was only marginally up. I would have expected to see turnout a lot higher last time. And I had a large bet to demonstrate that point I lost. Why hasn't uh, turnout much higher? Well, I think for that reason, I think uh, in spite of it being a competitive election, in spite of the fact that uh, the horse race was interesting and there were divisions between the parties, I think it's down to alienation and apathy. Mm. It's also people re- resiling from the choices that are on offer and not feeling mobilised to vote, as we heard some people say in the Vox Pops we heard earlier on. Is this a hangover from the, the expenses scandal? House of Commons, back over the past few months, there was uh, a curse on all of your parties. And this was from an awful lot of voters. And if you watch BBC Question Time, if you watch a whole range of, uh, of media outlets, I mean, this, this was of historic proportions, was it not? This was deep levels of quite specifically aimed alienation from the political system. And it goes further back than that. People are being punished for a massive banking crisis, which was not their fault at all. They're going to be punished in the future. Mm -hmm. And I think the MPs took the backwash from that in a sense. What do you do with bankers? You know, what do you do with banks? They're a fact of life. Can our politicians in the UK win back the trust of the citizenry? I think they can because I think we need to distinguish between a general sense or critique of members of parliament. You know, do you trust parliament? Do you trust MPs? 
And if you take something like the Hansard Society Democratic Audits, what people will say is that my MP is pretty good. I like my MP. They work hard. They're doing a good job. So you need to distinguish between a kind of generic criticism. I think people were very, very unhappy with the fallout from the expenses scandals. But, I mean, there are two things to note about that. One, globally, comparative terms, this expenses scandals wasn't that significant in, in kind of financial means. And secondly, lots of people still value the work their local member of parliament does. And I think that's why, actually that event hasn't had a massive impact on the decline in trust. That was, decline was already occurring. It was pre-existing, as Paul said. And actually, we haven't yet seen a massive sort of turn away from electoral politics. Well, they don't trust the electoral system now. This is the point. So we have to have a change in that. I mean, it didn't have much. I mean, the Hazel Blears, who was implicated, held her seat. Heathcote Amory, who was implicated, lost his seat in Wales. There wasn't too much of a spin in terms of the way in which the votes were cast. Uh, Luton South was held for Labour, despite the intervention of Esther Ranson, who ran on a ticket of probity and got no votes whatsoever. I suppose that's life for her, really. What can you do? But uh, I don't think it had any effect in terms of the way in which the election went. I want to move on at that point and talk about another aspect of participation and possibly exclusion in the election campaign. Now, people focused very closely and there was a, there was a great deal of interest in a surprisingly big audience for the first of the leaders' debates, slightly less perhaps for the second and the third of the leaders' debates. Who was watching these debates? What was the audience and what impact did they have? Sarah, what do you think? Well, I think with the first one, I mean, you know, being a politics academic, you know, you're sitting down and you're thinking, my goodness, I've got to watch this for an hour and a half. So I was very surprised both by the size of the turnout and this idea that people actually watch politics for an hour and a half. But it clearly caught the public imagination. I think some of the ways in which the media used very immediate polling to sort of set the then secondary discussion of these debates was really quite interesting. But I think my concern about the, the way in which these leadership debates had an impact is that the, perhaps they just focused their campaign on these three men over a period of three weeks and policies that perhaps we should have been discussing, whether that's the economy, but whether it's also issues around the public sector, were just lost from the campaign. So actually it really narrowed the focus to one of personality and style rather than perhaps the issues we should have been discussing. So this debate's about it being a good thing and that it mobilised many more people perhaps, but I'm not convinced the extent to which it maybe was good for the, for the content of the debate. OK, would we have had more policy debate if we did not have the three leaders' debates? What we would have had is not the media running the uh, electoral kind of campaigning agenda. What we'd have seen was many more... Uh, on day on a daily basis, the kind of each of the parties putting out their manifesto commitments. Now, it may not have worked the, to the degree that I might have wanted it to, but I think different issues would have been on that grid day after day. And what happened was it was really a question after the first debate: who who agrees with Nick and who doesn't agree with Nick. One of the interesting things about the debate, especially the first one, was the great explosion of popularity of the Lib Dems afterwards. Mm. Apparently, a third of viewers had never heard of Nick Clegg before, so mm. there's a novelty factor which is quite interesting. Mm. And I think seriously, a lot of people mistook it for the X factor. Mm. They thought, you know we sort of rate people on their performance Mm -hmm. rather than what they're talking about. I I seriously think that's what it was because there was this great explosion of popularity for the Lib Dems which then didn't translate into anything at all. So whether we like it or not, our imaginations force us to look at the political horse race, as it were, through the filter of the X Factor. Something that was on TV before, which is more interesting, was a Chancellor's debate because they were talking about something much more concrete. Mm. As you said, the international affairs debate really wasn't about international Mm. affairs at all. The trouble is, I mean, the great advantage of the media in the the 24-7 news agenda is that it provides a public space in which politics is done and it allows us as citizens to see further and farther than we ever could without it. But the trouble is, and it's no way rounded, is the media are simultaneously occupying that public space and participating in the process. I mean, I found what was most disturbing about the debates was that within four minutes, 
you found out what the instant polls were about who won, who lost. And I was always determined as someone who tries to earn a living studying politics is to watch debate myself because I didn't want the media telling me who won without my having made my own judgment. Uh, and, of course, Gordon Brown always came third. I mean, the trouble with Brown is that he doesn't have many of the media skills that you need, communication skills, to operate as a modern politician. If he had turned water into wine live on television in the debates, people would have said, that wine is poor quality. What are you thinking? <laughs> what are you doing? So there's these narratives that the media fit into, and they, they are participants. The spotlight showcases them as much as it showcases the leaders. And the problem with the leaders' debates, I think, which is why as a citizen against them, I think in democratic politics we have too much attention to leaders and we actually need more attention to candidates and policies and parties and not just three men or even if they were three women telling us what they think and us spectating their process. Paul, I'm wondering about social class in those leaders' debates as well and indeed the outcome of the election, of course, with the new prime minister and deputy prime minister, both expensively educated in private schools we talked about gender. In terms of social class and political leadership, has the UK taken a backward step or is this just, no, is this just at the top of top rung they're looking and uh, things are looking like it might be a backward step from there? backwards 20 years, I think, I mean, in mm. terms of, of backgrounds. It's over 50% of Tory MPs went to private school, something 54%, I seem to think. Another interesting thing, which is about breaking into the political sphere, is this whole notion of internship, which we hadn't heard of much until very recently, I think, that... You need a fair bit of money. You work for nothing. Is this so a this reference, is, to uh, young men and women who I'm, work yeah, for the party, the, work of, in think tanks? And the contenders, um, say, for the Labour leadership, all of whom have been in um, politics since their 20s, yes. Yes. straight out of school, advisors. straight out of university, mm. special advisors, advisor here, advisor mm. there, so in the network base. There's, there's no place for ordinary people in Parliament. Off. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's an issue that, that the Speaker's Conference uh, Special Commission that was set up in the last Parliament to actually look at the underrepresentation of various groups actually addressed. And one of its recommendations looks towards this idea of internships and actually looking at a way of providing fair opportunities for people to have chances, not just through your familial links or, you know, and who can get you an internship in the house. Because I think you're right, some of those informal sort of benefits that are available to certain you kinds of people. You don't even hear about it unless you're in the know either. No, so it's worth looking to see the extent to which Parliament actually does create something that will have opportunities for all kinds of people to actually well, participate. The class is so narrow that one family is providing two candidates for the Labour Party leadership, the Millibands. It's unheard of since the Simons in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, they're probably talented people. They are talented people. But it's that narrow, both of whom were special advisors, very talented people, of course. But I think the interesting thing is 7% of the population are, are privately school educated. 75% of the cabinet are privately school educated. But of course, they come from the top private schools. Is, is it true that there are more graduates of Eden than there are women in the cabinet? It's six of one and, and four of another. So yes, there are more. There's one other aspect of participation which was highlighted a lot during the campaign, but I know there's some scepticism about whether this really makes a difference or represents an advance in terms of citizen participation. Twitter, Facebook, new media, young people inspired by Clegg in the first debate, we are told, or we were told at one point, Sarah, what do, what do you make of that? Is, was this an Obama moment of new media coming of age, as it were, in democratic politics? I'm probably going to say something that's probably not very fashionable, which is I don't think it is. I think for most people, these things pass them by. I think there's probably a small group of politically active and technologically aware people for whom this may well have represented 
the first, if you like, internet kind of election. But I think for most people, no. I think, if anything, this was a, an election that returned people back to the televisions. I think the focus on the leadership TV programmes and also subsequently on the coalition negotiations, in fact, made newspapers redundant in some way because we had to keep up with what was going on by the hour. Mm-hmm. So perhaps the internet was important in that sense as a going to, say, like the BBC website or something to see what was going on. But actually it made people watch telly and that's perhaps old-fashioned media. I mean, internet politics means often you have to pull things out of it. So if you're not sufficiently motivated to go and find things to pull, you're not likely to. It's not a push technology mm-hmm. like television news is, whereas television news is your pushed information, or even newspapers to some extent, because you see the headlines, you're aware of the story. Maybe. Uh, well, maybe once you're in YouTube and you're fishing around, stuff kind of gets pushed at you there as well. But you, you, have to be, you have to be looking for it, I suspect, to a large extent. And, of course, more people are. I mean, there's obviously a digital divide between old people and young people, young people are more in, more likely to Twitter than the old people. But more politicians Twitter in order to push information out in the hope that some people will then pull it at the other end. Uh, this was a very information-rich election, and the media, new media forms played a very important role in that. But it's at its infancy. Mm-hmm. But it's going to develop over time. I think certainly newspapers had a bad experience in terms of sales because we all read newspapers free online now, and we don't need to buy newspapers in the way that we used do to. Do we have to do politics in real time now? We need real-time newspapers. Mm. What they will be, what that will become, we don't really know. What about Mumsnet, yeah. that was a novelty, wasn't it? That, that seemed to have some influence. I think it did early on. I think the parties perceived it to have an influence, which was quite interesting. It goes back to this idea that women are, are less likely than men to have, be strongly attached to political parties, much more likely to make their mind up towards you know, the election date. And therefore the political parties saw votes up for grabs and therefore wanted to access those mediums. Mm. But again, it, it, it really did get displaced. It was looking like it was going to be a mum's net election. It looked like the big debates were going to be over these kind of issues. Hmm. In terms of participation then that we've talked about from varied angles, in terms of the media that we've linked to participation, uh, I've got one final question, uh, which is this. Did democracy win or did democracy lose as a result of this, in many ways, fascinating UK election? Paul? I think it held on, basically, without any great problems. Um, I think it might have a little more um, vigour in the future by virtue of the fact that we've actually, the British electorate has faced the need for some kind of more radical reform simply than just changing the government. Richard? Uh, The dude abides. It prevails. It neither wins nor it loses. We change the government. Bear in mind, this is only the second time since 1979 the party government has changed. We had 18 years of conservative rule, then 13 years of Labour rule. And we changed seamlessly and peaceably, and uh, things are, as they, as they say, turnout is up. For the first time ever, incidentally, in terms of vote share, we have a coalition government which commands over 50% of the votes in terms of its representation of the Commons. And that's a first, because normally you get mid-40s will give you a parliamentary majority. And this hung parliament has produced a more representative government. But I think things are much as they were. My feeling is as long as local government remains ignored, hamstrung and irrelevant as it is, then democracy will continue to lose. Uh, But Sarah, to you, the final word. Gosh, well, I think the point you just made is quite interesting. And I think what, in order to answer that question, I think we're, I'm interested to what extent is this coalition government actually going to take on the issue of electoral reform uh, and perhaps electoral systems reform? And, and to what extent will that actually re, you know, regenerate the British population and politics? So actually, the coalition government is supposed to be in favour of localism and local government. So you know, maybe you'll get your, your, you know, your desire fulfilled in the next six Months on a year. I might get a strong society if I don't get a big society. Mm, I, wait, I wait to see mm. what both of those mean. <laughs> 
And in that and many other respects, there will be much to debate as the coalition either settles down or breaks up or does a little bit of both over the coming weeks, months and years. My thanks to Sarah Childs, Paul Lewis and Richard Heffernan for this lively discussion. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.